Hey guys, welcome back to Just the Good Stuff. This is your host, Rachel Mansfield, and I am so incredibly excited about today's episode with the founders of Feeding Littles, Megan and Judy. I have personally been following Megan and Judy ever since I found out I was pregnant with Ezra, and I've been absorbing all of the amazing info that they share with their community every single day about feeding children and They're just the go-to people in this space. I swear, I love them so much. Megan is a registered dietitian and Judy is an occupational therapist and lactation consultant. And together they have grown such an incredible community called Feeding Littles. They are a go-to for parents and guardians everywhere for all the tips when it comes to feeding your children. I know for some, feeding your child for the first time can feel so scary and it's always helpful to have your go-to gurus like Judy and Megan here to help guide us along the way. I found their approach to all things feeding littles, ha ha ha, to be so helpful and they also sell courses on their website for both infants and toddlers and I'm sharing a very special discount just for you guys. The discount code is just the good stuff for $10 off your course purchase. I highly recommend purchasing these. They have one for infants and toddlers and just use the code just the good stuff in all caps, all one word and you have, if you have any difficulty accessing this, Please let myself or Megan or Judy know. And I know you guys are going to love this episode so much. They walk us through baby led weaning, all of the tips and tricks in turn. Well, really not tricks. They pretty much confirm the fact that there's no tricking your kids when it comes to eating. But they just made me feel so much better about a lot of the decisions I've made for Ezra in terms in terms of eating, how much he should be eating, like what's on his plate, table manners, like all of the things they talk about. And whether you have toddlers or infants, this is the episode for you. I know you guys are going to love this episode as much as I do, and I cannot wait to hear what you think. Please do share it over on Instagram if you enjoy our conversation and tag myself and Feeding Littles. This episode is packed with so much good stuff. I hope you all enjoy it and reference this episode as much as needed. I am definitely planning to bring Megan and Judy back on the show because there were so many topics like during the episode that we wanted to talk more about. But I was like, oh my gosh, guys, we've already had you for like 80 plus minutes. We want to bring them back on to talk about diet culture and how we can prevent that, prevent our kids from, you know, falling into the same traps like at least I personally did. And I just, oh, I cannot wait for you guys to hear this episode. I have to stop talking. Now, before we dive into today's episode, it only seems fitting for this episode to have Ezra's favorite snack sponsor it. Scout Organic. We first tried Scout Organic a couple months ago, and both Ez and I have been hooked on these snack bars since. They are made with such simple ingredients, and they are pretty much a parent or guardian's dream when it comes to fueling your kid with something quick and easy and delicious. Scout Organic makes plant-based kid snacks made with four to seven ingredients that I personally feel very good about giving Ezra. All of their bars are gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, egg and dairy-free, and many of their bars are even nut-free, like the apple pie, which is my personal favorite, blueberry blast, and the newest one, raspberry rush. These bars are filled with either nuts and or seeds, and they aren't too chewy. They don't get stuck in Ezra's teeth, which I love. They are soft and easy for him to eat, and he absolutely loves them. And for me personally, you guys know I love my gummies and like all like these like fruity things, and these satisfy that fruity craving for me. And the best part is you can snag 20% off of your first order on Scout Organic and free shipping over orders uh, on orders over $23.95 with my code Rachel. 
I highly recommend getting each of the flavors to try them out all for yourself. They have Raspberry Rush, Blueberry Blast, and Apple Pie, which were all the nut-free ones. Then they also have peanut butter and jelly and a peanut butter chocolate chip. Also delicious and so incredibly addicting to snack on. Head on over to scoutorganic.com and use the code RACHEL for 20% off your order. Now let's dive into today's episode. I didn't realize that like before having Ezra, like how confusing it can be to like know how to feed your child and like what to do, what not to do. Like how am I not going to screw up my kid? And I've been pretty fortunate that like very intuitively I've just kind of known what to do for him thus far. And it always came, came as like almost like, I don't want to say common sense because it's not, it just came naturally to me. It's like whatever I'm eating, he eats and right. I'd give him cubes of avocado and he would just start eating that. And when I started sharing more on Instagram about feeding kids, I'm like, I'm not even comfortable talking about this because I'm not an expert. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just feeding Ezra and hoping that he, he likes what I'm doing. So I'm so excited to bring you guys on. I, like I mentioned, I have dozens of questions, um, but I would love for you also just during the interview, if there's like anything that's like helpful or topics that you think are important to address. But I would love for you guys to both just take a brief moment and introduce yourselves and what you do and why you guys are so amazing. Megan, go first. You want me to go first? Okay. It's always hard when we're in because Judy and I are in separate, <laughs> separate states, so we're always talking as one, but we're in totally different places. So um, we are Megan and Judy. We co-own Feeding Littles, and um, I'm a registered dietitian, nutritionist. I um, have two kids. I have a seven-year-old and a four-and-a-half, almost, I guess she's almost five now. Um, and this all kind of all started, I'm going to let Judy introduce herself and what she does because it's really interesting, but I just wanted to give you a little tiny backstory because you probably wonder why we live in separate cities and how we even know each other. But this all started when I was teaching classes on infant feeding and baby led weaning or infant self-feeding back in 2013 in Arizona. And I started a Facebook group and people were asking questions and supporting each other. And then they said, hey, we need something for toddlers and could you make it online? <laughs> and I was like, uh, okay, I don't really know how to, I don't really know how to do that. A. And also I don't even know what to say because toddlers are very different than babies when it comes to feeding them. And also I was taught how to feed or what to feed them, but I didn't actually know how to get them to eat it actually. Um, and all of that, that Judy does. And so we were connected by a mutual friend named Sarah who actually happens to be on our team now. And Sarah's son, Jack, had a terminable, terminal um, genetic disease called SMA. And he passed away at six months of age and Judy was his feeding therapist. So it was really a sad, hard time, but Judy was kind of that bright light to their family that came in and treated him like a baby instead of you know a, a dying child. And she lived in Colorado, they were getting treatment in Colorado. and. When she came back to Arizona after he had passed away, she said, you need to meet this person. You need to do something with her. And so the first time Judy and I talked, it was, we talked for two hours. We couldn't stop talking. We knew we had to do something together. And um, we started, we we're like, that would be easy. Let's release an online course for toddlers. And 18 months later, <laughs> it came out. And then two years later, we did an infant course um, to kind of talk about what I've been teaching in person that whole time, but then also add all of Judy's flair to it. So 
we are very much an accidental business, a, an angel driven business that, um, just very much happened by chance and by, by luck and grace. And Judy is awesome because her background is so unique. So Judy, if you want to explain what you do. Thanks, Megan. So hi, I'm Judy Delaware. So I'm an occupational therapist, feeding specialist, and I also have um, my, my background is also in lactation. So I'm a lactation counselor. So I've been doing this a really long time. So what I typically do is I work in people's homes until March. <laughs> um, and typically I would just drive from house to house and I'd work with babies zero to three through early intervention. I have a small private practice and, um, and help parents with their kids and parents who, parents who have never had issues with their kids who have feeding issues. They're just like, what you are busy. You have like a full-time job with kids who don't eat what, you know? And I'm like, yeah, it's a real thing. So the majority of my clients may be premature infants and they've been discharged from the NICU and they come home and they've lost that ability or they never really got the ability to learn to suck, swallow, breathe. So feeding didn't come naturally, or maybe they have pulmonary issues or genetic issues, cardiac issues. And I always say this, like if you can't breathe and your heart's not working right, you're not going to want to eat like food is just not cool. So uh, up until March of this year, I was driving around seeing babies in their homes. And now I'm doing everything exclusively from my office here. And it's kind of been interesting. And if we get to talk about that today too, Rachel, I'm happy to talk about how telehealth is kind of changed my delivery, you know, point of care and how I'm delivering services. But, you know, Megan and I are from, two extremely different walks of life um, and how we met is, is just really miraculous and sensational and fabulous, but we have the best symmetry because I have older kids and my kids are 24 and 26 and I went through all of this um, and her kids are just at the beginning and obviously there's a, there's a significant age difference between Megan and I, but we have the same thing in common that is babies, feeding, food, all things kids. And, and now we're all going through the same thing together with the pandemic. That's you guys are like a power duo. I love it so much. And um, Judy, my best friend's an occupational therapist. So she, yeah. And you know, every time she comes to see my son, she's always like doing little things for him and like kind of testing him. And I'm like, get away from my son. Like he's fine. (laughs) But it's always so nice to have someone like to call for questions and you have so much patience for what you do. I could never, oh. ever do something like that. I like lose oh. And does she, does she work in pediatrics? Does she see little kids? Yeah. Um, with um, like different various disabilities and she works in a center. Um, I think that's remained open during this time, but her goal is to have like a private practice down the road. Yeah, so, where is she? Where are you guys? Where where are you located anyway? So I'm in Hoboken, New Jersey, which is about oh, and then it's okay. outside of Manhattan. Oh, you know of Hoboken. Cool. Who doesn't know Hoboken? Come on, Frank Sinatra, <laughs> right? Come on. <laughs> so many people don't know where Hoboken is. Um, so I'm super close to the city and my friend Abby lives in Philly. So she yeah, she's based there. She went to grad school there for occupational therapy and she's from like the Delaware area, but we met um, in, at Muhlenberg in Pennsylvania. But yeah, so I'd love to dive in and get started on kind of like the introductory phase of foods for infants for the first time. And 
again, a lot of these questions are just all like very commonly asked and I've tried to like put them together. So I'm, we're satisfying everyone's uh, needs and curiosity here. But the first one is when is the best time to introduce solids to your baby? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we want to make certain that babies always start when they show readiness cues. So we want to make sure their postural stability is there. So hips and all that strengthening, making certain that they look good in sitting and they're starting to grab for your food and that they no longer have that tongue thrust, that primitive tongue thrust. And honestly, then that's when you want to start. And then when do you really want to begin is when the baby's not starving. You never want to try to feed an infant when they're starving. They're still drinking mom's milk or formula or whatever, you know, how they're getting their primary calorie needs being met. But you want to give it to them. You want to put them in the you know, in their feeding chair, when they look stable, when they're happy, they, you know, they haven't just woken up from a nap and they're maybe a little still out of it. So it's all about the right state of what does the child look like and, and how will they do? What um, would you say is like that? Sorry, Megan, go ahead. I was going to say, I was just going to add to that. The age is because a, a lot of people ask for ages. And I think what Judy emphasizes that, you know, age is important, but so is, so our readiness cues but the average age I'd recommend to start now is around six months. Got it. We started with Ezra, I think five months. He was also, he was premature and he was struggling to, to grow a little bit. So my doctor was like, why don't you just try feeding him something? See if he's interested. And at five months actually on the dot, he started eating avocado and all of a sudden he just like really started to take off in terms of growth and he has not stopped growing. I'm pretty sure since, mm. since then. Um, he like forever has a love affair with food. Now you guys focus a lot on baby led weaning, which is, again, I get asked a lot if I did this method in particular. And I think I've definitely unknowingly did a lot of the same, similar like methods and approaches to baby led weaning, but I just kind of like did Rachel led weaning kind of went with the flow. <laughs> I always wanted Ezra to feed himself. It wasn't purees. Like I think a lot of it was definitely adapted from that idea, but I would love for you guys to dive into like what exactly is baby led weaning and why is this method so different than other feeding methods? I'll take that one if that's okay. Um, so baby led weaning is a term that was coined kind of in, in Europe um, and it's essentially a description of babies feeding themselves from the start. The term weaning is confusing for those of us in the U.S. because we think weaning means cessation of breastfeeding or bottle feeding, but it really means how do you start giving them food? So if you think of baby-led weaning as an American, just replace the word weaning with feeding. It means self-feeding from the beginning. I think it's actually the term and the, the method has kind of been used to mean some really intense things in the last few years where there's tons of quote-unquote rules around it and there's a whole bunch of intensity in like online mom groups that makes it seem like if you don't do it this exact 100% way, as defined in one way that you're not doing it at all. And when Judy and I met, she wasn't super even familiar with it because it was really new to the U.S. at that time. But so much of what infant self-feeding is, is what she's always promoted with her clients in practice. It's literally just allowing your baby to explore various safe textures and temperatures, flavors, and foods in a way that they can feed themselves. Traditionally, you wouldn't necessarily have to pure, you know, you wouldn't be pureeing all their foods. You would be giving them whole pieces of food, letting them pick it up, um, use various grasps as they develop them to pick up food and put it in their mouth, chew with their back gums. 
and eventually swallow as they get more and more skilled. And it's really not that much different than what we've always recommended for infants and in that we've always said finger foods can start around six to seven months. It's just the elimination of putting food on a spoon and putting it in your child's mouth. Instead, we recommend, you know, if you want your child to eat something that's a little bit smoother or even a period texture like applesauce or maybe, you know, maybe you're, you're making mashed sweet potatoes and you're eating those as a family, um, you can put it on a spoon and hand it to your baby and let them put it in their own mouth or put it directly on the tray and let them play. Um, so we're trying to bring a level of kind of balance to the, the baby led weaning world where um, we let people know that there's a way to do it within their comfort zone and that if you choose, like the, the end goal for either traditional feeding, which is kind of that spoon feeding, right, or baby led feeding, the end goal is still the same. A, you know, an independent self-feeding kid. You're not choosing to do spoon feeding and purees their whole life. It's just how you start. Um, so what we're hoping to do is kind of normalize that like self-feeding in infancy is a good thing and it's something we want to promote. But if it's something your family wants to use a hybrid method with and they want to do some spoon feeding, while it's not traditionally technically baby led weaning by definition, it's still not unsafe. And there are many ways to help a baby get to that point where they can be independent with food. I love that. I'm so happy that you had mentioned at the end, you can just take it to take it for what it is and adapt it to work for you. Cause that was one of the main reasons why I didn't do it in the first, because I know a lot of moms that did and they were all like, Oh, are you doing baby led weaning? Are you going to follow this method? And I'm ahead. I'm like, I'm stressed enough trying to breastfeed Ezra and like follow that method. Like I need to like figure this out on my own and it's overwhelming and it's daunting. So I love that you said that you can do like a mix of solids and you can also like give some purees at times. What are like five foods that are the best to introduce to kids first? Oh. Easy, easy. Well, and I would say the things that you want to be able to use to start with would be sweet potato, avocado, any kind of strip of um, like an egg, and that would be like a fried egg to be able to do something that way. Any type of softer fruit to begin with, and again, as long as it can squish between your two fingers. And I love starting with foods that might be toast with a smear of avocado or even starting to add some things like nut butters onto them. So you want it to be in that nice long strip that the child can begin to grip and grasp onto and get it into their own mouth. So that was, that's where I'd start. No, I love that. And speaking of nut butter, a lot of moms and parents at times are really nervous to introduce nut butter. Like what age do I do it? Like how do I know if they're going to be allergic? It's they're an ideal age to introduce that. And like, if you guys have any tips on doing that. Um, yeah, I'll take that one. That's a really good question. The, the data kind of suggests introduction between four and six months is ideal. And we still, it's a little confusing because the American Academy of Pediatrics still recommends solids around six months. So what we, we kind of, we kind of say is that let's start solids around six months and when baby's showing readiness signs and right away get into those allergenic foods. We have data to suggest now um, that Delaying allergenic foods is actually not beneficial. It does not lower their allergy risk. And in fact, it might increase their allergy risk. And so when I started teaching this class, I mean, I was part of a big discussion was, you know, we actually do need to give them these allergens. And I think a lot of pediatricians at the time hadn't been keeping up with some of the data on that. And, and even the position paper that was out from the AAP. And fortunately, it's become a lot more well known. Um, and there's more research now to suggest that we really need to do those allergens early. There's no guarantee that your child will have or won't have an allergy. 
it's really, it is, it is a guess, the guessing game. Um, some, we do tell parents that if, if parent has an allergy themselves to a certain food, or if baby has already been showing allergic response. So um, a lot, like lots of eczema, or if they have um, any sort of intolerance or issues with something in mom's breast milk or in formula, they're having intolerances already or any sort of known allergy, definitely work with your allergist or your pediatrician before starting any allergenic foods. But um, a lot of allergists are really going in the direction of early frequent exposure to help with prevention. And that is scary because we don't know if a child will have an allergy, but we do know that if we wait, we could make the risk higher. So you're looking for hives, swelling, you know, um, a lot of times you'll see a rash around the mouth or on um, the trunk or extremities. Um, obviously anything affecting breathing is an immediate call to 911, getting a baby to a hospital right away. And I know this sounds really scary, but from a good majority of babies, they either aren't allergic or the initial allergic reaction is very low. And again, it's something we can't avoid because waiting longer just increases their risk. Um, so we recommend nut butters, like peanuts are a different allergen than tree nuts, actually. So we would recommend you know, trying both of them away from new allergens. Peanut butter thinly spread. Judy always says, <laughs> offer peanut butter like uh, like it's meant to be used or meant to be eaten. And I'm like, okay, I don't really understand what that means because I feel like it's a whole <laughs> food group. So you mean on like a huge hunk on a spoon? Um, and she says, no, it's technically a condiment. I did not, I wasn't aware of this. Oh, I, know that. <laughs> I know. So technically you're supposed to like thinly spread it on something else, um, allegedly. Um, and it, that's the safest option for babies because we don't want this big, thick glob of peanut butter. So what I did was definitely not the most ideal. I like spoon, like I spoon peanut butter, like just daily. So I spooned it for Ezra. We actually were going to the pe My brother's highly allergic to peanuts and nuts. Ah. So I was like a little weary, but like, I'm pretty laid back with Ezra in general. So I'm like, you know what, God forbid something happens. I'm going to do it in the parking lot of the doctor. Like we'll be fine. And my brother, it's not airborne or anything. Like he has an EpiPen, but it's not like too severe. So we did it and I gave him like a big spoonful of peanut butter and he, he was fine. But then every other day after that, I did every single nut butter that I had and yeah. he didn't, yeah, he didn't have any reaction. But do you think that when the mom is pregnant, eating like top allergens really have any impact in the womb? Like, or is there any evidence of that? There is. Yeah. yeah, there is evidence that um, avoiding allergens could be. Well, here's what I'll say. This is what I know. What I have recently read is that there is no evidence that we should avoid allergens when pregnant. I don't know if eating them is substantially beneficial, but um, obstetricians and pediatricians are saying now, like, eat, eat those allergens when you're pregnant, eat them when you're breastfeeding, if you are breastfeeding, if you can, because we, we do think that it might lower their risk, but I think the jury is you know, still out on that one. And a lot of allergists take kind of the, the opinion now that like, we have to try, we have, we can't live in fear of food because you can have an allergic reaction to anything at any time, even as an adult. And that is kind of scary. Something we don't really think about, but I know people, I mean, Judy and I have both developed allergies as adults to foods. Yeah, me too. I like strawberries at an eggplant. You too? Oh my gosh. She's yeah. strawberries and I'm eggplant. Yeah. Well, yeah. Great. We're all soulmates here. I oh. yeah. I was 27 and I woke up the next day after both of hives everywhere. My eyes glued shut and I woke up eating strawberry. I mean, I grew up 
uh, eating strawberries every day. Like I love them. They're my favorite snack for fruit. It's so crazy though. But when actually speaking of fruit, do you recommend kind of holding off on introducing fruits and like the sugary type foods until you've introduced like more vegetables and, and non-sugary foods? Start, and I'm sure Megan might, might have something to add to that. I know that from my generation, that certainly was a technique that parents used is, oh, start them off with savory, start them off with the vegetables because they'll never eat those. And I would say that that's traditionally dissipated and people don't utilize that. I like to be able to say, we want kids to eat from a rainbow. We want them to see color and grab things. And it's a lot easier actually to institute, you know, to, to get kids to be grabbing fruit with their hands than many, many more of the vegetables to begin with. And I think understanding that taste buds also have a, a role in this too, that we want kids to learn to be able to taste a lot of different things from a very, very early age and color plays a huge role in it. So I think it's important to be able to offer a wide variety of tastes and textures to kids before they're nine months old because that window of development starts to close down after that nine-month period and you want your kid to be able to say I've had all the vegetables all the fruits if they're eating meats all the meats as many carbs and simple carbs as they can be able to you know work on as possible so I think that that might be an older technique that mm -hmm. people maybe used to use but I certainly don't see that happening, especially during this time of year when there's lots and lots of fresh, you know, garden vegetables and fruit out there. Megan, what do you think? 100%. And to add to that, if you've ever taste, tasted breast milk or formula, I don't know if you've ever tasted breast I've milk. I've had my breast milk. I've never had for, I mean, I had formula when I was a baby, but not right. recently. You don't remember, but I don't know. It tastes very sweet. It's extremely sweet. And your baby already knows what sweet tastes like. I think if we get too caught up on limiting them and limiting what they're having and going so slowly we're missing out like judy said on that rainbow and i will tell you that i don't i'm not a fruit person i am very much a savory person i'm weird with sweets our followers know this like they make fun of me i hate donuts i hate muffins i hate fruiting <laughs> things like i guess i'm a picky eater in that regard but i know what i like and i i am very much a vegetable person and when i had my first baby i didn't give her a lot of fruits because i just wasn't eating a lot of different fruits myself it took me over a year to get her to like bananas. Wow. Because I just didn't give in to her that much. And her name is Hannah. And we literally called her banana. And <laughs> I was like, and she was a banana for Halloween. I'm like, this kid won't even eat a banana, you know? And so just from that funny kind of anecdotal experience, I still, you know, she still very much does not, it's, it's a little bit, she's not my fruit kid at all. And I don't know, that could have just been genetic or yeah. a chance, but I was a lot more conscientious with my second about giving her lots of different types of fruit and there's no fruit that she won't eat now. So it is kind of funny to see the difference between the two and just to know that like fruit, you know, we get all, we're super carb phobic in our, our society and people just worry about growing these sweet monsters. And I understand that fear just because people feel like they have addiction to sugar and that they can't control themselves around it. But a totally different intuitive eating talk but fruit has you know is full of phytonutrients and vitamins and minerals and fiber really great for you know constipation too and when toddlers become more selective it's great when their safe food is fruit That's instead true. of necessarily just you know pretzels 
Mm-hmm. They are getting a ton of nutrition from fruit. So it's not a bad thing to give them fruit when they're babies and let them experience that. They don't need juice per se. We, we recommend juice more when, um, like if they have constipation, you want to give them some prune or pear juice like, diluted just a little bit, but getting them, you know, accustomed to fruit is a great thing for a lot of reasons. You just made me feel so much better because I'm a bit of like a sugar Nazi. Like I love sugar. I am a sugar fiend. I love donuts, cake, muffins, mm-hmm. you name it. I'm eating it. My sprinkle pop socket, my donut. <laughs> I feel you. Like I grew up downing Entenmann's. Like I just, I have a sweet tooth and I don't want Ezra to have that. It's, I want to like help prevent that as much as I can. But I was so strict about like, no, don't give him a banana. He already had strawberries earlier and like, don't give me too much fruit. But now you just made me feel so much better because in my fridge right now, I have cantaloupe and mangoes and pineapple and like so much fruit. And I'm always a little too cautious about his, uh, his fruit intake. So thank you. My mom will be happy to hear that because all she wants how, to eat my son fruit. <laughs> how old is Ezra? I didn't catch how old you said Ezra is. Okay. He's 18 months. 18 months. Okay. Mm-hmm. Funny. Now, what are your thoughts on all of the like baby, like labeled foods? Like when I told my parents and my mother-in-law, like we're going to start giving Ezra food. Um, it's going to be avocado. It's his first food and sweet potato, whatever. My mom was like, well, what about baby oatmeal? Like, what are your thoughts on all of these like baby labeled foods in the grocery store that are like definitely upcharged a few dollars and it's literally oatmeal. Like I gave him the same oatmeal I eat every day. If I can start with that one, and I know Megan will have something to offer is my goal for parents, even from the very beginning, is to avoid the baby, the baby aisle, except for diapers and desitin and um, wipes or whatever you need. And and I have a couple of things to say about pouches, because we need to go on through that. So that was my next question. So thank you. So we'll just, yeah, we'll go into that. So there is definitely a time and a place. There are, there are great foods that are out there in the baby food aisle. If you're traveling, I know like, what's that, but you know, utilizing things that have been put into containers, they're fine. They're totally great for, you know, your diaper bag, you're traveling, you're like, I have no food and we couldn't get out, whatever. And they're totally fine. But our goal is for you to walk around the grocery store and to hit all those aisles on the side, you know, where all the, where all the real foods are, to be able to eat real foods. And when, when I begin to talk about pouches, I used to kind of stand on a pedestal and say, absolutely, or not a pedestal, but you know what I mean, on my, my stool of life and say, no pouches. And I will tell you, as the feeding therapist, I utilize pouches in many, many different ways because I would rather a kid eat than not eat. And if it means that the only way we're going to get them to eat is via a pouch and popping a straw in there or doing a reusable with maybe something that they've created at home and put it in, you know, like a reusable pouch, food is food. And we have to start with someplace. But I think that understanding that kids were relying on that's how they were getting all their fruits and vegetables from pouches and utilizing things like that on a regular basis instead of creating the the routine around eating real fruits and vegetables is probably not something we want to be able to condone but you know i walk walk the walk you know be in somebody else's footsteps and and see how that feels um so um, my perspective is to try to avoid using any kind of baby food unless you absolutely need to. And again, when I work with kids in feeding therapy, 
things are a little bit different. I do very traditional spoon feeding with many of the babies that I work with for different reasons is because they don't have the jaw stability. They don't have the strength. They, they don't have the coordination and they can't start with some baby led weaning. And then that's a whole different story. So Megan, do you want to start with maybe talking about rice cereal? Oh yes. So <laughs> I think this is such a hard concept too, because I think Judy hit on it. Like we don't want to come from a place of judgment of our, our parents if they want to do something or if they have done something or they want to utilize a product. But I think you're right. You, you kind of said it, Rachel, like these products are expensive and I think they're marketed specifically towards families and parents think that they have to use them because they are baby yogurt or baby teethers or baby these things. They feel obligated to buy them because they feel like it's a necessary step. And what we like to talk to parents about is they can eat the foods that you're eating. It makes it cheaper for you. It makes it easier for you. You don't have to make or buy or do anything special unless you really want to. The issue with rice cereal that comes up um, is that rice cereal was traditionally used as an iron source. We know that babies start to deplete in their iron stores starting around six months, and that's one of the reasons we start foods at that time. And rice cereal was considered a low allergenic, fortified source of iron that people used, you know, when um, it, around four months when you recommended starting at four months and babies might not have had the strength or coordination to self-feed. Um, and what we've realized over the years is that, you know, that recommendation has gotten pushed to closer to six months when your baby is sitting well, bringing hands to mouth, can feed more whole foods. But also there's been more information coming out about how rice is grown and how groundwater is contaminated and rice can be really high in inorganic arsenic. Um, and obviously rice is a very staple food for many cultures across the world. It keeps millions, billions of people alive. Um, it is an important important crop. But unfortunately, it also is very absorbent to arsenic and groundwater. So one thing that's kind of come out in the last few years, kind of a caution from various organizations and, pe and pediatricians about how we want to limit rice cereal with, with infants, because they, they're so small, and they're getting so much, you know, they might be getting rice cereal three times a day. And suddenly their, their intake of arsenic can be higher. And rice can be a great part of your, you know, your child's diet, especially if that's something important for you and your, your culture. Um, mm -hmm. But it's, there are so many other sources of iron that we can give babies besides rice cereal. With rice cereal, you can't really control the arsenic content as well either. With rice, whole rice, you can soak it and drain, you know, drain the water. Um, you can buy rice that's from that's known to be grown in cleaner groundwater. So there's just ways to control it a little bit better if you're serving rice as it is. And there are just a lot of other whole food sources of iron that you can offer your baby that aren't, you know, fortified rice cereal. Now, a lot of people who are on WIC and or who don't have as much access to food or for whatever reason might want to use rice cereal too. And, you know, that's fine too. We just recommend also adding other foods in so that they're not just getting only rice cereal. No, I love that. That's so helpful because I, I didn't have the reasoning that you had just given for why I didn't have that. I just kind of said, no, I'm not comfortable doing this. And, you know, to have a better understanding is very, very helpful. And also, when I even make like organic basmati rice and soak and give it to Ezra, he doesn't even like it. He like does not enjoy it. It's hard for him to eat. You know, it's like a weird consistency. Yes. Um, but I actually have a question on the pouches, um, Judy. Now, Ezra, when he was younger, he never really liked pouches. I have only given him the pouches that are more like the proteins and vegetables, like no sugar, 
like I said, I was a bit of a sugar Nazi. Um, it had like avocado oil and like grass fed beef and sweet potato, whatever. And he didn't, he didn't like them. He would just spit it out. He would like, it would like repeat on him very easily. But recently he started boycotting lunch before his like three hour nap, which is weird because Ezra's in the 98th percentile for weight. So he doesn't really boycott <laughs> many meals. Um, and so I started giving him pouches for lunch again because I'm like, you know what? At least I know you're getting like six grams of protein and like some nutrients before, but he's 18 months, but he actually enjoys it. Like, do you think that's okay? So at least he's eating something for lunch or is he better off going to sleep, not having lunch and risking that he's going to wake up after an hour and a half hungry anyways? Great question. And I have a super easy answer for that. And it's kind of a twofold. He can have as many as he wants, but you have to open the pouch and pour it in a bowl, and he has to eat it that way. So if he wants it that way, great. Or you can stick a straw right into the pouch and let him drink it that way. The thing that bothers us so much about pouches, especially for the full-term, healthy kid, once in a while, great. But you know how like when you start doing something habitually, all of a sudden it really is the habit? And what we don't want to do is just have kids sitting there pounding a pouch that takes like two seconds and it's gone. And where was the mind-stomach connection of getting satiated? Yeah. So, um, so yes, so if that's what he's like looking for, if he will eat it, make sure he sees you putting it into the container, you know, whether it's a bowl or, you know cup, whatever he's going to eat it out of and allow him to eat it that way. So I don't ever want to, I mean, I used to bad mouth pouches, but pouches are not all that bad. You know, I mean, depending on, especially with what utilizing, I mean, there's a lot of them that are just straight up, just sweet and drink it. And it's, it's almost gone in like yes. a second. So, so, so that's what I would like to say about that. So it's just balance. Where is the balance on all of that? Is that now a habit that that's all he wants to eat for lunch? Could it be used as a dipping sauce? Could that, that wonderful. And one thing I wanted to mention, if I could go back to the last question, the one food that I do like parents buying in the, in the food aisle of the kid, you know, like the baby section is Bombas, you know, the, the little creation. Um, I think they're from Israel, but I think there's a bunch of other companies taken off. On the, but, but I love those because that's great way to be able to introduce that allergen that's baby safe and small and and of course tastes really really good so, and that would be a great thing for Ezra it would be able to do is to dip something like that into that puree um, and eat more like a scooping method with something like that does that make I sense? Love that. No, that's such a good idea. And actually, speaking of the Bombas, I was at Whole Foods on Sunday, and they have like a non-GMO one that's like a little bit cleaner than the ones at Trader Joe's, like the ingredients. Mm -hmm. um, and peanuts, you guys know, are like better to have non-GMO verified like when possible because there's a lot of like pesticides and such in the crops. But they had them at Whole Foods, and I just selfishly love them. They're so freaking good. Now... The next question, is it possible for babies or kids to overeat? Which is something that I'm selfishly asking for my son, Ezra. He is like a bottomless pit when it comes to most meals. He loves snacks. I cook for a living every time I'm in the kitchen, whether it's like me slicing something to cook. He's like, din, 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 din. That's his cue for food. And 
all day this kid would eat. He's like a garbage disposal. Is it possible for a child, like an eight, oh, really, this has been going on since he was, I would say, 12 months, um, 10, 12 months. Is it possible for a child to overeat at his age? Megan, go for it. Oh, this is totally my jam. Um, <laughs> you and I both have like so many things that we intersect on with things that are like more our areas or whatever. And this is kind of getting into the, into the intuitive eating realm, right? Um, so children don't know how to overeat unless we teach them. And the way we teach them is by forcing them to eat more than they're ready for. And in a way that people think like, oh, forcing, I would never force my child to eat too much. But it happens pretty subtly and pretty easily. Like, okay, you need to take three more bites of that until you can get up from the table. Okay. You need to have your vegetables. You need to eat all of those peas before you can get dessert. Mm -hmm. That's actually teaching our kids is to not listen to their hunger and fullness cues anymore. And it's done with really good intention because we, we want them to, to eat a lot of different foods. We want them to be healthy. We want them to, you know, appreciate all foods. And that's what our parents might've done with us. But what we sometimes don't realize is that we're training them to override internal cues of hunger and fullness and what is happening in their body and what their body is telling them is extremely important to continue to trust. There's kind of this element that you'll read in a lot of the literature and a lot of the, um, the work about pediatrics, about body trust and trusting that intuitive nature of your child um, and trusting that they know how much to eat. Now it can get messed up by certain, you know, medical issues and, you know, developmental issues and such, but for the most part, for a typically developing healthy kid, it is extremely normal for them to eat a lot of food one day or maybe hop back and forth between eating nothing and then eating a lot. They make up for it at other meals. It's really strange to kind of watch the progression of a you know, baby, toddler, old preschooler and see they go through these phases where they'll eat tons of food and then they'll eat nothing and you think that they're surviving on air. And... <laughs> It's weird because their growth isn't all over the place usually. It's pretty steady. And that's kind of considered normal, normal development, normal intake for kids. And our, the problem is if we intervene, if we don't let our kids eat when they're hungry, we can start to confuse those messages. Um, we can kind of have them over-focus on food and not trust that they're going to get enough, which actually in some kids can lead to like hoarding and binging and that kind of thing. So we recommend regular meals and snacks and letting them have their fill at those times and not forcing them to eat if they don't want to, but kitchen's closed to the next time because grazing is also kind of a way to mess with those yes. hunger and fullness cues too, right? If you're always neutral, you're not going to be motivated to eat because you don't really have a big drive because there's no hunger there. Um, so, but, but using this with flexibility. So you're cooking, you're, you know, Ezra's in the kitchen with you he sees food, he's hungry. You know, I don't know how many of us are like snacking while we cook. I do it too. Because you're starving and you're like, I just need a little bit of something. Mm -hmm. That actually, that's a great time to like, you know, he's getting old enough to start to help with meal prep very mildly. Okay. Judy probably will have, give a ton of information about that. And it totally fits into what you do, but you can have him, you know, you cut up bell peppers, you can have him. Can you put them in the bowl? Put him in the bowl. Maybe you have a learning tower somewhere he can stand next to you. Okay. Um, so he's got counter height. Can you put him in the bowl? And so now he's interacting with the bell peppers. He's touching them. He's eating them. Do you want to eat a few of them? Like let him try those as he's cooking. It's kind of a nice, safe way for kids to interact with food that they might not necessarily even, you know, want, want to. 
So there's some flexibility there. Like you don't need to be like a mealtime Nazi where you're like, no, you cannot eat until the dinner is on the table. But in general, you know, keeping a nice routine around food and, you know, letting them eat their fill when, when you serve food is really helpful and kind of fostering those, fostering them listening to their signals of hunger and fullness. If I can, if I can add one thing, starting in the beginning, if parents really want to do traditional spoon feeding, I always ask this question, you're the one who put the food in the cup or the bowl. And who's the one that decides there's still like three more bites in the bowl? Who's to decide when the baby's full? And from day one, this teaches parents, if you're going to do traditional spoon feeding, read your baby's cues. Understand who's deciding. I'm going to work. You know, it's a very satisfying feeling if you're feeding a baby from a spoon that I'm going to get these last three bites in. But what if the baby's saying, No, and you guys all know how to read your baby, but that starts right away. It doesn't start, you know, later on when they're crawling and pulling up to stand and, you know, standing at the, in the kitchen table or something like that. It starts really early and it's respecting a child's ability to self-regulate. And that, that is exactly what Megan just described in its clarity. So it kind of sounds like Ezra just actually is always hungry then. Cause I'm always like, no, you don't need more. You don't need more. I'm never like, finish this. You have to eat this. Like never. Like when we go out for pizza or when we make grilled pizza, like this is just what's on top of my mind. Cause we did it last weekend and there was like, you know, smaller rectangular or square slices, like, and he had three of them and then he kept, would have kept going and going and going. And I was kind of like, no dude, like you're done. Like that was a lot of pizzas, cheese. There's things on the pizza, not just bread and sauce. But he just has like, he'll keep going, 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 going. And then next thing you know, his stomach is so puffy, but like he just like loves to eat food. Loves. Well, and that can be scary. I think there's a lot of fear. I mean, there's a lot of fat phobia in our culture, right? And we're really scared that we don't want our kids to be subject to social, you know, um, ridicule because of their size and all that. Again, probably a totally different podcast topic, but <laughs> I get really passionate about that because we, yeah. we are meant to all to be different sizes. One thing I do always talk to my parents, we get this question a lot, actually. This is an email I get every week, probably multiple times a week. And oh, it actually it. is the, the age range that you're talking about. It's usually like the one to two. Because guess what? By the time they turn two, this will slow way down for most kids. So, yes. Think about, okay, first of all, he's still growing at a fast rate, not as fast as infancy, um, but his growth rate will slow down as he gets older. So he won't need quite as much. He's probably extremely, extraordinarily busy. Is he just moving all the time? He doesn't. You, you, I offered to pay him $10,000 for Sesame Street. He obviously doesn't know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> like he's like, no. Even if he did, he would say no. And one thing to think about, sometimes babies, if they are not getting, or toddlers, if they're not getting enough fluid, if they're not getting enough water, sometimes they can confuse those hunger signals. Um, how much water does he drink and how much milk does he drink if he does milk? A lot, a lot of water. He okay. probably drink, I, he has like a, a eight ounce water bottle and that thing is filled a few times a day. Okay. Um, he just loves things in his mouth. <laughs> yeah. He loves it. He's never had milk. So right after breastfeeding, I just, he was eating so much that the doctor, not so much, but he was eating enough where the doctor was like, I'm comfortable with you not doing milk. So he never had it. It was just water. and, and Right. So he actually is going to be eating more than a typical 
toddler or a toddler that's drinking milk. Okay. Uh, I shouldn't say typical because nothing's typical anymore, right? But if you're comparing him to like your friend's kids who are drinking yeah. milk, a cup of whole milk, if they're doing whole milk, is 170 calories. So if they're doing two to three cups a day, which a lot of them are, he's, he's not. He's not getting any of it that way. Um, one thing I do want to add nutritionally is it's so important and nobody talks about it enough. And we're going through a pandemic where immunity is a thing. It's super important for all toddlers to be on vitamin D, all babies and toddlers. And you probably already know that. Um, some people just don't. And I shouldn't say all because there are some caveats, but I just, if it's okay, I just want to interject this. I've been talking to mom yeah. groups about this. We just got to, we just got to talk about it because of its potential influence on our COVID, you know, our risk of severity of COVID. We still don't know enough information, but we think vitamin D might help and have a good, having a good vitamin D status. So if you are breastfeeding, I'm going to go back to infancy. If you are breastfeeding and um, you want to avoid giving your baby a drop, a supplement directly, the available evidence we have is that you have to take 6,400 IUs of vitamin D a day, which is quite a lot of vitamin D. It's way more that's in, in most prenatal or postpartum vitamins. Um, a lot of people will get like a 5,000 IU and then they'll take what's in their prenatal. Usually sometimes it's up to 2,000 and that's kind of how they get that, that met. The reason for this is because we pass very little into our breast milk because a lot of us are deficient ourselves. And the only way to know if your baby's getting enough from your milk is to, to do a blood test on them and to see what their serum levels are. So we didn't even have that data until the last few years, but 6,400 is kind of like that minimum that you would need to be taking for your baby to get enough through breast milk. If you don't want to take that much, or if you're worried, um, or if you just want to give them a supplement, then just give them a drop. It's 400 IUs is the recommendation. The reason vitamin D is important is because of not just bone health, you know, and bone growth, but also because of, of immunity, where we know it is involved in our immune system function. Again, it's a little unclear. We don't quite know with COVID, but it's one of those very inexpensive public health messages. I think that's important. Mm -hmm. So when your toddler turns 12 months old, a lot of people think, oh, they're not a baby. They don't need this drop anymore. Their vitamin D needs actually go up. They don't go down and they actually become harder to get because um, babies aren't drinking as much milk if they transition to maybe like a whole milk or a, um, some other sort of alternative milk. Whole milk is fortified with vitamin D3, and D3 is the type that you want. Alternative milks are actually fortified with vitamin D2, which is not the, the kind of most usable form. So that's actually not even really super helpful. But even if you were just doing cow's milk that's fortified with D3, your toddler would need to drink six cups to get enough vitamin D. Wow, that's a lot of milk. <laughs> that's a lot of milk, way too much milk. We do not recommend that milk for almost every toddler unless they've got some specific issues going on. Um, if they were on like a toddler formula, it would be six cups as well. Wow, like when, when I was breastfeeding, I gave Ezra like the drops and then mm -hmm. immediately when I was done and he started having like water and stuff, Garden of Life launched like an organic vitamin D drops that are so easy to add to yeah. water, so yeah. I was like, been doing that but that's I'm so happy you brought that up because that's something that like isn't spoken about enough and I didn't know that until Ezra's mm -hmm. pediatrician told me when I was breastfeeding she's like you need to give him vitamin d drops he's not going to get it from from you your breast milk right yep and so and you know I, and he would if you were taking huge amounts and you knew what your vitamin d status was but it's it's like that involves a blood test for you and it's just it can be it's one of those things it's like it's such a low risk and such a high reward to give the inexpensive drop. Um, and we do recommend the kinds, the drops that are pretty simple ingredients. You don't need anything else besides really a carrier oil. Yeah. Um, so like 
um, Carlson Labs also has a good one or Baby D Drops or um, North Naturals. And these droppers can have like, you know, 900 servings in them. Like it, it lasts you a really long time. Just note that when they turn one, their needs go from 400 to 600. So you want to get a toddler one or you could give them two of the infant drops. Some people will do like two drops every other day kind of thing. We just want at least 600 when they're when they're, when they're um, one. And it doesn't actually go away, that need for vitamin D. The recommendation from the AAP is through adulthood. It's like I until they're adults. Yeah. yeah. Me too. All of us, yeah. And, and a lot of people will say, well, you know, I just want to rely on the sun. And I think that's the m- most natural way of us to get vitamin D. But Unless you live in Hawaii and you're outside. Well, <laughs> exactly. I mean, you, you live on the East Coast. I live in Arizona, so I get that all the time. Like, yeah okay, yeah, let's rely on the sun, but we slather our kids in SPF sunscreen every time we go back, go outside for good reason. That yeah. prevents your ability to synthesize vitamin D from the sun, and we don't have – 70% of kids in the U.S. are deficient. It's a huge amount. So we just have it's, – it's just one of those things. If you're going to do any supplement, that's the one that we definitely recommend. What do you about probiotics? Do you think that it's beneficial to add probiotic drops to, like, their water, milk, or anything? I think the jury's out on like how beneficial, right? And it depends on the strain. I don't think it's problematic. My kids take probiotics too. Um, I think that's hazard too. Yeah. It's one of those where I think the jury's still out, but if your kid's not getting any cultured food, fermented food in any way, it's probably couldn't hurt. Um, but it's vitamin D is still probably the most important of all of them. Now for formula fed babies, when is the best time for them to transition to having cow's milk? And if you don't want to give your child cow's milk or they're lactose intolerant, like what is the best alternative milk option? I'll talk about a lot of kids that I work with and families that I have experience with because I would say the majority of the kids that I work with in my private practice are on specialized formula. And we begin to introduce cow's milk to most kids in baked goods, dairy products, cheese, you know, yogurts, right away. I mean, and unless we have an issue that these kids can't be taking it, I start to, I call the pediatrician and make certain that they are okay with us beginning some cow's milk, literally like little sips from a little cup, somewhere around, I don't know, nine or 10 months. I mean, just for trying the taste and the flavor. Obviously, we're not going to be putting whole milk into their bottles if they're formula fed, But we want them to acclimate to the taste because anybody who's had a formula-fed baby and they try to move them on to cow's milk are like, oh, that's not going to happen overnight. So, you know, the taste is there and there isn't anything real magical that happens on their one-year birthday that's like, okay, now they can drink cow's milk. But, you know, here in Colorado, there are, and I'm sure all over the country, there are so many options for what kind of drink um, of choice kids are drinking. And I would say, you know, I grew up in, uh, you know, in, in the Midwest where we drank three big glasses of milk a day and got milk at our lunch, you know, in those little containers with those fun yeah. straws. And we drank milk all the time. And that is, you know, depending on where you live and how you grew up, maybe not what people are doing these days with, with the creation of using, you know, different milks. So I would say it really depends on the family family's choice of what they are drinking also and are they getting enough calcium from their regular food? Because that's really what all that matters. And as so to answer your question, 
you can start a little early. It's coming through baked goods. And then it's really a matter of choice what the family is drinking. I, I work with many families that are doing pea protein milk or almond milk. You know, I mean, we don't want to see kids drinking, um, getting all their calories from, from milk to begin with. We really want that balance to be in there um, and drinking uh, a lot more water. Megan, what do you think? Uh, I love that, Judy. And yeah, I think it has shifted. I think the focus has shifted about, you know, it's really been interesting in like the last five years that I've noticed that people just aren't oftentimes giving their kids cow's milk for a variety of reasons. And this is such a debatable topic, you guys, and I don't think there's a right answer on it. I mean, we have a whole milk and weaning ebook in our courses where we talk about the pros and cons and we talk about some of the science and it still gets down to like, what's affordable, what's accessible, what does your family drink, what do you like, what can your kid tolerate? It's a lot of choices that parents make. The reason cow's milk has become, you know, was traditionally used is because it's a high calorie, high fat, high calcium option that, that helped kids transition from a more primarily milk diet to a more food diet. It was kind of like this little bridge. It can be used, you know, it can be challenging because what a lot of families, what some families do is they, they kind of just replace formula or breastfeeding with milk in such a high quantity that it prevents their kid from eating enough food and getting really towards a more whole food diet. But it, it can act as a nice like adjunct to their diet, I would say, in, in toddlerhood. Um, it is World Breastfeeding Week when we're recording this, so I do want to say that some people choose to keep breastfeeding too. Um, you don't have to stop breastfeeding when your child turns one if you don't want to. Um, again, personal choice. It has to work for mom and the, the toddler. I put that out there because I actually breastfed both of my kids till after they were two. So people always ask me, like, what did you transition to? Yeah. I didn't transition to a milk because they were still breastfeeding, just not as often. And then they just kind of slowly weaned and just drank water. But now they get all of their nutritional ne needs for calcium met through dairy foods. Or they'll do a little bit of like almond milk in their smoothie or something like that. So I think that's just a hard question. Nutritionally, I just want to add that a lot of the plant milks are very low in calories. So if you're using it as a way to supplement your child, like for growth, I mean, if, so a lot of, uns, like the unsweetened almond milk is like 30 calories. A glass of whole milk is 170 calories. Uh, so it's very different calorically. And some people just use it as a way to get calcium into their dairy sensitive child's day. And they know that it's not going to be replacing, you know, it's not going to be acting as a caloric source. And that, that's a great too. They just kind of need to know, understand their options a little bit. And I, I feel bad that this, we could talk about a whole podcast just about this topic, um, <laughs> but we do have a resource. We do have a milk and weaning ebook about, about this. If somebody is more interested where we lay it all out and we talk about different choices. No, I'll definitely link to that. Cause I know that when I, announced that I had stopped breastfeeding Ezra. And again, I didn't, I stopped a, around a year because I was supposed to go on my book tour for the first four months of 2020 until obviously that was canceled. So I was like, well, I, I didn't want to be pumping. So I was like, let me just fully wean. So, so I'm done. But like I said, I didn't give Ezra anything. I also felt like a lot of the nut milks and alternative milks in the market, I know what everyone can afford is very different, but a lot of them are just filled with junk and like gums and this and that and natural flavors. And that's just not something I was comfortable giving my son at such a young age. When should a baby be fully transitioned from having a bottle of milk? Judy question. <laughs> I don't it, want to touch that one. Go Judy. It, it depends on the kid. 
every situation is so completely different. Weight gain is important. You know, I mean, we at Feeding Littles, we are huge proponents, and especially in my private practice, huge proponents of introducing an open cup and a straw cup at, a, at six months. You know, kids can drink from other, you know, vessels early. And the sooner you teach them that, the either easier the weaning process becomes because they haven't really had their whole life only working with that. And they see you drinking from those things. So, you know, it, I don't want to say a hard and fast rule. If a kid is still drinking a bottle a day, but they're drinking from an open cup and a straw cup. Okay, good. What's our plan? Where are we going? You know, where's the weight gain? Tell me more about your baby. Um, so I would say that, you know, are we, have we checked off the list? Are we only drinking milk? Are we not eating a lot of food? Are we drinking more milk than we're eating food? Then we should have a conversation about that. Okay. That's helpful. Thank you. Um, what are some of your favorite tips and tricks to like sneaking vegetables into food? If your child like doesn't really just love spoonfuls of broccoli or carrots or whatever it is. I'll start, and I'm sure Megan's got a million. Oh, that's a duty, great duty question. <laughs> we, I, I am not a proponent of sneaking. Um, okay. Kids are smart, and kids are wise, and kids figure it out. And number one, you want your kid to trust you, hands down. If they know that you're doing something behind the scenes, and you're doing that with intention, I mean, sometimes, you know, you'll throw some zucchini into a banana bread or something like that. But if you're doing that with the intent of we want them to eat more foods, think about what your, what your premise is and what, we, what you're laying down in front of that child. So what I recommend to begin with is I love using a puree, you know, as the superfood to get onto the highway of eating a lot of different things. So let's say all of a sudden your kid's not wanting certain things. You can do taste tests with them. You can do it as a dip. You could do it as a sauce. So working on trying to get those foods in front of them again, making certain that that child is eating a wide variety of colors and textures. Um, hopefully they're not only eating only fruit and there is more vegetables and other things going in there. But uh, to be perfectly honest, I don't like to sneak anything in. Kids are wise. They're wise guys and, <laughs> and they can figure those things out and, and you want them to trust you. Now, if the child is a little bit older and they've got a learning tower and they can work with you at the counter, you can do more things that are more creative around working around, oh, this is spinach, or what are we adding into it? You know, smoothies are another great way to be able to get some of those things in, but making, making the child cognizant of what this is. You know, talking about color, talking about um, where it grows or how it grows or something like that. Now, with Ezra, I've been sneaking in like spinach and arugula into like a grilled cheese sandwich and he eats it. Like mm -hmm. he doesn't say that he doesn't really like greens, which I don't know most kids that really enjoy eating leafy greens. But I put him in like quesadillas or like something where it's, do you think there's like harm in doing that if he still eats no. it? No, I mean, you know, and, but it would bring it to his attention. Like, let, like if he's old enough that he can identify some colors, you know, like let's say you have a couple of different bowls and you have a green bowl and an orange bowl and a yellow bowl. Can he start to be like, oh, that's green. So the spinach and the arugula is, you know, green. You can put that in there. So he's making that connection. Okay. It's green. So 
that, oh, I eat green food. Green food is okay. Green food was in my quesadilla. It was in my grilled cheese. Yeah. So, so working on that. So it's not like a, what am I getting? Yeah. With, you know, I got to get that learning tower. I, you know, I keep seeing it on Instagram and I still don't have it. <laughs> it's like, I'm in the kitchen eight hours a day. Like I got to get that learning tower for him. It'll help you. And it's actually a good investment because I, we still use ours. My kids are seven and almost five. We still use it all the time. They love it because it, it goes down. The little partners one is the one that we've always had. And it goes, the, the platform goes lower and lower as they get taller. So I'm ordering that after this. Yeah. You might want to get that. Um, Especially I want to, I want to add something about the sneaking. Um, first off, I think you're not sneaking as much as you think because those greens are very visible. Like when I think sneaking, I think of like people blending in butternut squash into something. Now there's also an element of like, do you cook like that? I cook like that. I cook with vegetables. I cook using vegetables in many different forms. I put, you know, onions or mushrooms in my, you know, um, ground beef when I make tacos, like that kind of thing. And I think it's okay for kids to learn that the way your family eats includes a lot of, a lot of vegetables if that's how you eat. Um, I think though it's more, I think what Judy's referring to is like the purposeful, like tricking of them mm -hmm. to eat something where they can't see it. They can't tell it's there, but at some point they're going to figure it out and okay. they're going to see you do it. You know, I think if you show them like, Hey, you know, there's carrots in here. There's yeah. carrots in here. He's helping you cook. He's helping you. He learns that normal in our house is when we make quesadillas, we put arugula or we put spinach on it and you have him help you. That's not sneaking. He's very well aware and he can mm -hmm. see it. And he, I mean, my kids, when we order pizza, for example, there's always a vegetable on it. So I give them a choice which one do you want to try this time, this or this, but it's always, and so they know that when we eat pizza, we eat it with vegetables on it. And that's just how we eat in our house. And it's a way for them to kind of get that exposure, but also know that things are different every time we eat them. No, I love that. I mean, I feel like anything masked in cheese and like whatever, yeah, it's gonna be he's going to eat it anyways. Bread, <laughs> it's overpowering. It's um, a two fingers, let's be honest. When do you think is the best time to start introducing like family dinners and like during those times, is it important to all eat the same exact thing or at least the same genre of, of, of something? Day one, starting, starting right away. I love having kids at the table from the beginning and as soon as you can get that high chair to the table, as soon as possible. The, what we don't want is the high chair over in the corner and the kid eating all by themselves. As soon as you can get that high chair, feeding chair to the table, or if, even if they're sitting on your lap, they're right there with you and model, model, model. You hear Megan and I um, just explain that that is the best, you are the best toy. You are the best video that your child has is model it, encourage it, instruct it, experience it, eating it, eating something alongside with them. So you asked also, should you be eating the same food? Yes when possible. And maybe in the beginning, that's not something that you're going to be eating. A lot of times parents are like, I don't like that. How do I, how do I fake it until I make it? Like my kids eating something or like, and, and some of us, because all three of us have food allergies. What if what we're giving to our kid is something we're allergic to? You know, it'd be nice. So I'm allergic to strawberries as you are. And if you're working on strawberries with the kid, maybe having something Maybe have a raspberry or have something red so that it, it, it looks similar, at least in the very beginning. But modeling and being the best model you can be with your kiddo. So family meals, absolutely very important. 
Pumpkin. No, I love that. I'm so happy you said that because actually yesterday, I know my mom will listen to this podcast and think this is like a dig at her, which it's not at all. But <gasps> where we put Ezra's high chair just when we're not eating is like, a little further from the table just because I don't need the high chair. That's my desk too. Now that my husband has my actual desk, but my mom wanted to feed, like help Ezra with his dinner, which I tell her he feeds himself, but you could sit there and talk to him if you want. But then we're all sitting there eating. I'm like, bring his high chair to the table. Like he's eating with us. And when we were just on family vacation, you know, it's common for a lot. And I understand everyone's way they like to work is different, but it's, they say more stress-free if they eat after the baby's down to sleep or their kids sleeping. And I'd rather just get all this shit over with and clean up once. And eat <laughs> yeah. I don't care if I'm eating at six o'clock. Like that's what I'm eating. One and it's yep. just like so much like they were like, well, don't we want to eat when Ezra goes to sleep? It's quieter. We can relax. I'm like, yeah, but like he's part of the family. Like he eats with the family. I don't like to eat by myself. Like why mm-hmm. should he eat by himself, by himself? But even like when we were ordering, we ordered lobster rolls for dinner one night mm. and I ordered Ezra a lobster roll. My mom was like, you ordered him like a $30 lobster roll. I'm like he's eating what we're eating. Like, why wouldn't he get a lobster roll? And we all like sat there and ate them together. And I just, I, so, I, I have such great memories as a kid eating with my family. And I just like love like the camaraderie of it. So even when he's, he's been doing that since he was sitting in a high chair, basically is what I'm trying to say. But I'm happy you reiterated that. So <laughs> It's like, it's the one thing you can do, honestly. It's like the number one thing you can do for your kid when it comes to food. And they know that like you eat. He also sees me eating a lot of vegetables, a lot of greens. So like he knows that green food isn't like disgusting. What can you do to help stop your child from like throwing food on the floor when they're not interested in it? Another Judy question. Pretty fun stuff. So from the very beginning, look around your environment. So if you've got a dog, don't penalize the dog, give the dog a little treat, put him behind a door or, you know, behind um, a, a gate or whatever. Don't penalize any pets because they're easy targets because kids learn gravity happens, you know, quickly when they can reach over and drop. So set up the environment for success, number one. So if you have pets, do that. Hey, and, and remember, kids will do whatever, like, so if, how can I say this in a quick way? If a child sees you laugh, guess what your laughter means? Laughter equals, I'm going to do it again, mom. So if you laugh when they throw things or, or play all clear, all done, clear the deck kind of thing, if you laugh, you just encourage that behavior. So if your child is throwing from day one, video yourselves, just video a meal and watch yourself. Don't show it to anybody. Video yourself and critique yourself. Not on a hard way, but is there something you as a parent is doing that's encouraging it? So you want to ignore the behavior and redirect the behavior. So that's where you start. So I have kids at seven, eight months who were working with small spoons and they're bringing it to their mouth and their first reaction is to go overboard and let go and drop it. But I tell the parent, get your hand right there from the very beginning intercept that spoon or the utensil, bring it back. And every single time you intercept it, commend them. Yay, you did it. Yay, yay, yay. Reinforce the behavior you want to see. That behavior, what I just said, will last you a lifetime as a parent because you always want to reinforce the behavior you want to see, not the behavior you want to extinguish. You know, we use, we have all kinds of tips and tricks inside of our courses that talk about other ways of being able to do it. But reinforcing the behavior you want to see is what 
parents need to learn from, for really from day one. And that will help eliminate any of that behavior. I love that. Thank you. Even when I was teaching Ezra how to eat from a fork, he loves using his hands. So he like holds the fork in one hand and like eats with this hand. I'm like, no, no, dude, the fork, fork to mouth. So I keep saying fork to mouth. And every time he does it, I'm like cheering for him. Like I'm watching the Super Bowl, and he keeps doing it. Cause he's like, yeah, I got this. I got this. And then, you know, he knows that type of like behavior, I guess, is going to get like, you know, appraisal for. And when he throws food and does anything now, I just started turning my back and I just totally, totally ignore him. And that's what his pediatrician had recommended too. Cause I'm like, when he doesn't like something, he throws it against the room. Like he just chucks it. And I don't want food waste. Like that's like, I mean, anything he doesn't eat, like Jordan, I end up eating because I don't want anything to go to go into the garbage. Um, my last question for you guys is what do you do when your kid only eats one to two things? Like we're in that phase where say, I'm making the things up, but say it's just pasta and cheese. Like what do you do when that's the only food that they're willing to eat? Well, I want to start and then Judy, I'm going to punt back to you. Sometimes we get frustrated and we don't want to wait. We don't want to waste food. We don't want to um, like, why bother? Right. If they're only going to eat chicken nuggets and like, mac and cheese. That's just, I'm just going to make that. I'm not going to stress myself out. And I think there's an element of like, if you're going through a really rough, this is a really rough time. Like there's sometimes you need like an easy meal and that's okay. But what, what we don't want you to, to think is that if you just like that, that, that's the time to start giving up on it. Your kid will only learn to eat what you serve them. So if you want them to eat a bigger variety of food, it's super important to still serve them those foods. Now, you don't have to give them a whole serving of it. If you want them to still eat that pea or those peas, <laughs> probably more than one, just put one down. <laughs> because also what we, we, a few things, Judy always says, you know, it takes 20 to 30 exposures of a given food for a child to like it anyway. So you have to keep trying. If you put too much food on their plate, just like if you go to a new restaurant or a new type of cuisine and you've never eaten before and you get this huge platter, it's very overwhelming. And it seems like, oh gosh, it's so daunting. If my expectation is to eat all this, I'm just not going to try. So try tiny little one piece. And then also remember that a one-year-old's vegetable serving size is estimated to be about one tablespoon, one to two tablespoons. So your child might be eating more than you think. And if you keep those portions small, you're going to prevent overwhelming them. And you're also going to prevent food waste. I mean, you're not worried about getting, you know, one pea or one green bean as much as you are about a whole serving of it going to waste. But your kid will continue to see that you're serving those foods and see that this is what we're, we eat as a family. And the only way for them to get there and to eat more is to keep seeing it. It's kind of a necessary part of the process. What if you feed them dinner and then they don't want it? And then like they literally are just refusing it and you know, they go to bed in an hour. Do you just take the brisk and put them to bed hungry? Is that like the, the go-to? Go ahead, Megan. So it's super important to always have a familiar food on the, the plate. So that's one thing we always recommend. Make sure there's a familiar food. Sometimes it's bread, sometimes it's fruit, you know, sometimes it's rice. Usually the beigey carby things are popular. And a lot of people put that with their meal anyway. If you serve a child all new foods for dinner, high likelihood they're probably not going to eat anything, especially if they're more selective. So always have a familiar food that they can, you know, tank up on if they, you know, if that's all they eat. But um, I've, I have put my kids to bed hungry before and that's not out of being punitive. It's because sometimes kids don't want to eat and we can't make them. And if we make them a separate meal, every time they don't want to eat what we eat, you will very quickly become a short order cook. 
very fast. It happens like that because guess what they, they've learned. This is, you know, Judy and I, Judy's taught me this all along. They just, just like the throwing the food, they've learned, Oh, if I don't want this, I'm just not going to eat it. I'm going to throw a fit and mom's just going to go make me what I really want. And that will be, you know, when they become an adult, that's their choice, you know, as they get older to make their own food and to be in charge of their own food. But you as a mom or a dad don't want to be their short order cook. That is going to be exhausting to you. And it's only going to make their selectivity more because they're, why would they eat anything you serve? Because you're always, you're always going to make something separate. And we, this comes up a lot in our Facebook group and it's really funny. I mean, obviously guys, I don't want you to, to think that we're passing judgment if this is something you're doing, but because people just don't sometimes know otherwise, but I will say that we, we get moms all the time that say, please don't short order cook for your kid because then if he grows up and marries somebody like me, I am really frustrated because he doesn't eat stuff because <laughs> his mom always just made him something else that he liked every single time. And it was really hard. Now, you know, if your kid has feeding issues and stuff, that's a whole different story, but yeah. it's, it, it, it is try to see it as a long, like a, like a marathon. This is a marathon. It is not a sprint. Every single meal is not going to be great. It's t like you're looking for the long term. And Rachel, you said that you love family meals and that's really important to you. What you're doing now is like the little tiny building box in the foundation that's leading up to what he will be like as an eater down the road. And even if there's times when he doesn't have, you know, he does a bad meal or things that he, you know, throws his food, acts crazy, whatever, like you're still staying consistent. You're seeing the end goal in mind. And, you know, if, if it's just like you served something that was all new or all spicy or something like that, and you want to give him a banana before he goes to bed and try again tomorrow, that's cool too. You don't have to be like militant about it. But in general, we don't want to make them like a totally separate meal just because they don't like every single thing we serve. Judy and Megan, thank you guys so, so much for sharing all of your wisdom and everything and guidance. I know this is going to be like such a success of an episode. I'm like giddy to go and edit it now, actually. Please tell everyone where they could find you. And I'm going to link to your courses too. And thank you guys so much for generously offering um, a discount code for, for my listeners. Sure. So you can find us at feedinglittles.com. We're on Instagram and Facebook at feedinglittles. Um, we do have a coupon code for $10 off our infant or our toddler courses. So they retail at $59 and $69 respectively. And the code is for $10 off. And it's just the good stuff all capitalized in one word. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. And we will talk soon. Thank you. Bye.